Welcome to our podcast series, Five Questions, Five Answers, in which we explore recent U.S. trade policies and U.S. trade rules that can affect thousands of companies. We have a goal in mind to help you, the listener, translate the legal into real-world business strategies. My name is Bridget Matisson. I'm the Director of North American Manufacturing here at Aaron Fox Schiff in Washington, D.C. I get the easy part. I get to ask the questions and I get to choose the colleague or the guest I know will have the right answers for you. So in the next few minutes, I will ask five questions that reflect the concerns we've been hearing from business leaders, all who want to understand the rules, but they also need to mitigate their business risk while increasing their bottom line. So let's start. The United States and Canada are home to a number of dynamic and innovative apparel companies with brand names certainly recognized around the globe. These companies have shown leadership in very many innovative ways, including how to maximize global value chains from fabric procurement to logistics to marketing. And this has certainly been true for companies doing business in Canada and from Canada. Since the 1974 NAFTA, we all remember that many years ago, the industry has shown a resilience and a look forward attitude founded in many ways by preferential tariff rules for North America. And from a U.S. perspective, American textile and apparel exporters, they benefit from duty free entry into Canada and Mexico, which, by the way, are still two largest export markets for these U.S. products. And I use the word here, export, somewhat lightly here. That's almost an arcane term in today's modern world. It's a mercantilist term that may not reflect the highly integrated nature of the North American apparel corporate profile. But yeah, much has happened since 1974, not least of which was the signing of the USMCA or the new NAFTA. But other dynamics have also bubbled to the top of corporate agendas and boardrooms. And that's namely the focus on the U.S. uh, Sorry, that's namely the focus on the use of forced labor in supply chains around the world. In fact, in many ways, USMCA negotiations foresaw the growing worry and agreed on provisions requiring the three parties to take enforcement steps to ban imports suspected of having been made with forced labor. Here in Washington, the passage of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act in 2022, just last year, it marked a milestone in U.S. trade policy. Aaron Fox Schiff has reported on this statute and its implementation by U.S. Customs and Border Protection in a number of alerts over recent months. In Canada, In 2023, in fact, a few weeks ago, Ottawa followed suit and it passed or its parliament passed a bill named S-211, Fighting Against Forced Labor and Child Labor in Supply Chains Act. It also amends the customs tariff of Canada accordingly. And we'll get into that particular angle in just a few moments. So guess what? We have Bob Kirk. He's the executive director of the Canadian Apparel Federation, who has been 
knee deep, if not higher, in the details of this legislation and its implementation in Canada in the months I've had. I've asked him to join me today to give his take on the legislation, its current status, what are the next steps, and what it will mean for his members, both Canada and I'm assuming US-based members. First of all, Bob, thank you very, very much for joining us. And uh, thank you for the invitation. Uh, let's start. Uh, first of all, um, what is the Canadian Apparel Federation, Bob? Well, we are, as you pointed out, an industry association with members that are based in Canada and, and also international brands and retailers with operations here in Canada. So we uh, typically have uh, mid-sized Canadian companies, large brands, large retailers, companies with a, a heavy emphasis on uh, apparel. Uh, we started out life many years ago as primarily domestic manufacturers for the domestic market. But as you outlined, uh, the Canada USFTA and NAFTA changed that. So increasingly, we have companies that are based here that supply Canadian and U.S. clients, and we also have, say, international brands and retailers that are based here that uh, uh, manage their affairs. So we're a very different association than we were when you know, when time began, before uh, uh, trade took over to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. And doesn't, isn't that correct for uh, almost every industry sector, but particularly yours? The... Um, the Canadian parliamentary system is certainly very different from the federal executive style system here in the United States and how a bill gets passed and what happens afterwards. So just, Bill, uh, Bob, give us uh, an update. Where are we on uh, the legislation and uh, how does the parliamentary system in Canada uh, differ from that here in the United States in terms of once parliament votes on it, that may not be the last step? Well, there's a few things. So first of all, uh, S-211 is a private member's bill, which is sort of very different than legislation in the United States. Uh, typically, and I would say 95% of the bills that actually pass through Parliament are government bills, meaning that the government of the day proposes it, it's debated, it goes through committees, not unlike uh, the U.S. system. But it represents government policy or intended government policy. Mm -hmm. uh, a private member's bill uh, is not that. It is an individual member of parliament putting forward legislation, uh, usually legislation with broad interest or um, uh, appeal. Uh, so, for example, there are bills that have passed in recent years that required uh, the Canadian government to institute a, a dementia strategy. Okay, it's not too controversial. I think dementia is a growing concern. Uh, it um, it uh, becomes law, and then it puts together some kind of reporting requirement to Parliament. So each year, the Canadian government has to report back to Parliament to say, we have a dementia strategy, and this is what it is. Coincidentally, my wife works <laughs> in the dementia strategy group. So simple, appealing, broad interest, that's the normal uh, uh, private member's bill. So the Modern Slavery Act, uh, as it was originally called, Bill S-211, is a private member's bill. Uh, 
the challenge with these is they may or may not be entirely aligned with the way the government is approaching the issue already, and you can run into some issues. So it's usually uh, something that doesn't actually work. Most private members' bills go nowhere. So, in fact, this bill is, I think, the third iteration of a modern slavery reporting uh, bill uh, previously introduced in, in previous parliaments. But uh, it's gained greater traction because of uh, the interest in forced labor, which you pointed out at the beginning. So it went it was introduced in the Senate, which is uh, contrary to the U.S. Our Senate is a little bit less um, powerful. Senate is the, the, the less significant of the two chambers. Uh, when you have an S on the bill number, it means Senate. So it's introduced to the Senate, passed by the Senate, came to the House of Commons, passed out and voted on uh, a few weeks ago, and it was given royal assent last week. So it is now law, uh, which is, again, as I said, a rare occurrence with private members' bills. So it sets up two things. Uh, one is a reporting requirement on certain firms, generally larger firms, to report on what they're doing uh, in regard to forced labor and child labor in their supply chain. Like obviously, uh, the intention is to have larger companies uh, document how they are trying to mitigate the risk of uh, forced labor and child labor. What it also does is make uh, very significant changes to the customs tariff. It reinforces the existing ban on goods made with forced labor, and it introduces an import prohibition on goods made with prohibited forms of child labor. So for the listeners, uh, that's a big deal uh, because really there is no other country that has an import ban on child labor, on goods made with child labor. So the plan today is that it will come into force on January 1 of next year. There is a, a considerable view that that will be pushed back. But today, uh, the implementation is January 1, and we can go into some of the obligations that are contained in the bill. Um, I am so writing down everything you just said, Bob. Um, that is very, very interesting. Um, let's assume that it is January 1, 2024. Uh, are there retroactive applications um, that are attached to the bill or I guess now the law? Mm. So what would uh, be required next year is, uh, so first of all, January 1, 2024, the changes to the customs tariff would take effect. And in 2024, companies that are covered by the obligations under the law would have to file a report with the Minister of Public Safety indicating how they um, address forced labor and child labor in their supply chains. Uh, I'm not, now that I'm thinking of it, it's certainly the obligation is that in May of next year, people would report. Uh, so this report. Um, is obviously a little is underdefined at this stage. There should be some regulations that come out, uh, but at this stage, there's very little guidance about what that report needs to include. So, if there's a retroactive feature, is that next May, companies that are covered by this 
would be reporting on what they've done this year. Uh, so it's not so much retroactive. It's just it's the manner in which you're reporting. Uh, and so it doesn't force you to change anything or take regard for anything else. But it's it's um, uh, it obviously takes effect. So uh, in terms of next year, the to my mind, the customs fair of changes are the more important part of the bill and the law. And again, as of today, these changes go into effect on January 1. And on January 1, 2024, on the customs changes, Bob, um, one uh, most significant change is a brand new HTS classification on Chapter 98. Correct. So, yes, within Chapter 98, that's where we, everyone has um, uh, the forced labor prohibition, which you described as a as a USMCA um, uh, uh, novelty, if you will. Um, and the ban on goods made with prohibited forms of child labor would also appear there. Um, in his uh, presentation of the federal budget a few weeks ago, Prime Minister Trudeau seemed to indicate, well, I guess he really did indicate that um, this issue was so important to Ottawa that the bill S-211 and now in, in a, a law in it itself may not be the uh, only thing Ottawa will come up with, that it the bill might be just a first step, not his words, mine, and that more may to come. What, what did he mean? What do you think is going to happen? So in addition to that, various comments in the budget uh, earlier this year, um, there was also a reference to the circumstances in Xinjiang, which prompted the U.S. to pass the UFLPA. And there were also comments either in the budget or afterwards that indicated that the government wanted to align the provisions of S-211 with other efforts. And as I said before, private members' bills exist on their own. They come from one member of parliament. They get a measure of support. They go through. But they may not be given the same kind of scrutiny that a government bill would. And as just as an example, uh, Bill S-211 went through the House. So it passed the Senate first, went to the House. And no industry associations were able to provide testimony because there was sort of a time constraint. It took them a while to get it on the docket. And there's a limited time where a bill referred by the House to a committee has to come back to the House for third reading. So in point of fact, uh, very few people had a kick at the can. So, uh, so it's not only they would like to do more. So the criticism of this bill has been you know, it's only asking companies to document what they do or don't do. So there's a, a view that we should be asking people to improve what they do or force them to. And that's usually under the rubric of a due diligence requirement. So you got to do more. So that may figure into the government's thinking. They may try to do something that implicitly or explicitly deals with the situation in Xinjiang, China. 
That's also been part of their thinking, but also this alignment, because we have four or five different departments all doing their own thing on whether it's responsible business conduct, forced labor, forced labor and supply chains, you name it. We've got too many departments with uh, an interest in this. So I do believe that by the end of 2024, we'll have new legislation uh, and in Part that might affect the implementation of Bill S-211 or the provisions under that bill. So it is not clear. Uh, so it's a, it's a challenging circumstance for companies that want to, to want to comply because the, the field will be changing. But Bob, S-211 also has a number of enforcement mechanisms, but notably at the time of import, but also post-entry audit powers. And did I understand correctly that corporate officers can be held personally liable to increase the focus on compliance? Can you help me understand um, those enforcement mechanisms? Let me, uh, I'll split out two, two separate parts of the bill. So let's first of all talk about the customs tariff changes that it brings forward. So Let's take, for example, um, a situation, uh, and I'm not making this up. This was reported in the New York Times a couple months ago, that a whole range of companies in the United States have been found to be directly or indirectly using uh, child labor. Uh, the, the stories in the New York Times dealt with some very high-profile companies, whole range of industries, uh, and generally it boils down to uh, irregular migration through the southern border. We have got a lot of underage um, uh, refugee claimants, if you will, and they are being um, essentially dispersed to sponsors uh, throughout the U.S. Uh, and some of those. Um, children are being uh, uh, employed at a number of different facilities. We don't need to go into all the details of it, but the bottom line is that uh, you have uh, individuals under the age of 18. They are working really quite excessive hours at a range of uh, facilities, and those individuals really can't um, go to school as would normally be expected. So they're being denied the, the, uh, the ability to go to school and to, to receive an education. And this essentially offends the customs tariff changes included in S-211. So let's just work that through. So they make some kind of part at a a factory. The, they're usually hired by an outside agency, some kind of recruitment firm. And um, they make a part that goes into something else, another piece of equipment or what have you. Uh, there's been some agricultural processing or food processing thing. There's been some manufacturing firms identified. The bottom line, though, is that once even a small part or input into a good can be identified as being made with prohibited forms of child labor, that product or good is tainted. So it should be disclosed at the border, which is highly unlikely because you know, why would you import it if you thought it was made with child labor? But you might find out that it is. 
So the goods should not enter Canada. Again, goods made in the U.S. with some portion of the inputs that are uh, products of child labor. So the goods shouldn't enter Canada, but it does. If it does enter Canada, Canada Border Service Agency has the right to seize the good. If you sold the good, CBSA has the ability to go back and say, you should have handed the good over to us. You need, in lieu of that, you need to hand over the value of the good plus duties owable. So you get into a situation where a small element of child labor identified by the New York Times is going into products that are shipped to Canada every day by U.S. companies. Now, this law doesn't target the U.S., but if I were the companies covered in the New York Times, I would start looking at my supply chain because you could have a big component, like you could have a huge product with a small but clearly identified component that is a product of child labor and the finished good is tainted. Now, the reason I point out all of this is because we are the first country in the world to institute such a ban. And I think it has been underappreciated because the focus has been on let's report what we do to prevent forced labor and child labor in our supply chain. No problem. That reporting element, not a problem. It's similar to what California has done, the UK, Australia, many countries have done this. But the customs tariff changes are novel. And I don't think in Canada or in our trading partners have people focused on this enough. And if I were uh, an NGO, I would read the New York Times and I would wait until January 1st, and then I would ask CBSA, Canada Board of Services, to verify whether products from the companies named in the New York Times and elsewhere, hey, we believe those products are made with child labor. So I do think that we need to understand that this is an iceberg. The tip of the iceberg is the, the reporting requirement, but the, the below water, whatever you call the bottom of the iceberg, is the customs tariff changes. And that's very significant, novel, and frankly, I don't understand how Canada can implement them because we don't have the kind of resources. So it's going to create a lot of uncertainty. I think it's going to redouble the efforts of your clients and others to check, to make sure that there's no child labor in their facilities. They're not using uh, employment agencies that don't have a diligent process to make sure that things are done properly. So that's why I say that your question was, are officers on the hook? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Company officers are because a, they have a modern, they have a reporting requirement and it does have penalties in it. And then you have the bigger chunk, which is to say customs tariff uh, provisions. And it's a big change. And it's just unfortunate that when it was before Parliament, our association and others didn't have an opportunity to appear before the committee considering it. Uh, 
And I don't think the committee actually got good advice from the uh, the people they uh, 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 reached out to. So it's been sort of an underexplored part of the bill. And I think it's going to it's going to rear its ugly head, as it were. That was a very, very informative and provocative discussion, Bob. Thank you for that. Um, and to close the loop, actually, from where we started talking about Canada-U.S. integrated nature of trade, USMCA, doing more together um, on enforcement. Uh, because the U.S. was a little bit ahead of Canada in passing legislation, uh, detentions at the border here in the United States, the numbers are higher than in Canada. That's probably understandable right now. Um, but move, looking forward to especially what you've just said, do you think that companies in Canada and the United States, are, are they taking a holistic approach on uh, North American compliance based on the more stringent U.S. requirements right now? Or do they have different corporate strategies to comply with both Ottawa and Washington? What What is your sense that I promise this will be my last question? No problem. So I think the uh, law and the enforcement have been very different in the U.S. So the U.S. has a prohibition against goods with uh, uh, content from the Xinjiang region of China. We don't have that. We do, however, have um, a bill in Parliament, another private member's bill, which would uh, basically mimic the UFLPA. Um, so, so first of all, you're out of the gate first. Uh, and it's it's worth saying that there's only two countries in the world uh, that have a complete ban on the uh, imported goods made with forced labor. Those are U.S., Canada, and actually Mexico is just, uh, has just uh, set up some procedures. Um, so it, it's not surprising that it's taking some time. Uh, and again, in the U.S. context, it's very clear. Uh, Customs has clear authority. Um, but at the same time, uh, U.S. importers have gone through uh, a very steep learning curve. I, I think that's the uh, kind of polite way of saying it with respect to UFLPA. It's very hard. Sometimes they're real opaque. It's very hard to actually comply with requests from customs. So the last thing I want to do is just do what the U.S. has done, or the last thing I would ask Canada to do. Uh, and the other thing is that Let's just assume that uh, our custom tariff changes take place uh, January 1st of next year. Uh, we do benefit from having uh, some learning from the U.S. process. So hopefully over time, some of the uh, prohibitions uh, or the process rather in the U.S. is clearer. Um, and look, there's lots of technologies that are coming along that help people identify, for example, cotton grown in Xinjiang region. These are genetic tests that weren't even imaginable five years ago. So I think there's some learning from what's happened in the States. Uh, I believe Canada will move closer to what the U.S. has done, but I don't think we'll be absolutely in the same position. And I guess what I would say, again, going back to your original introduction, the top um, uh, wholesale brands in Canada, 
uh, are usually selling in the United States, um, whether they're and if they're private label developers, same sort of thing. Uh, so the top companies in Canada are dealing with UFL. So they will meet or exceed anything that CPSA does. Uh, I think the challenge is there's a lot of mid-sized companies uh, here in Canada that have very little exposure to what's going on in the States. They don't have to. And, uh, you know, if you listen to people in the U.S. that deal with uh, that legislation, you know, thank goodness, because it's it's a very difficult environment. So we've got a situation here. Yes, we're going to work with the United States have some different laws, different restrictions, so it's not going to be 100% alignment, but certainly going forward, there's going to be a closer uh, link to things. And I would say that most Canadian companies, if they're able to deal with UFLPA, they can deal with anything that CBSA is going to do. So I think that's good learning uh, on their part. Uh, and again, I would also say that for American companies looking at Canada, we would want to make sure, uh, or they might want to make sure, that they understand what they're already doing. And it's unlikely that Canada will be wildly more stringent. It's just we'll have to you know, translate the learning that they already have in the U.S. to the Canadian environment. That shouldn't be so hard. And again, uh, the last thing I would say is that we don't know the details of some of this reporting. We don't know the timing really does some share of changes. So companies have an interest, whether it's in our industry or any other industry, they should you know, monitor it because um, the one other difference uh, regarding the legislative process in Canada versus the US is that our legislation rarely details all of the uh, enforcement guidelines and things like this. This, is, this comes out through regulations. And so they go trip, trip, trip over a period of time. And so now that S211 has passed, I think there will be some regulations that start coming out in the summer or in the fall, and people should watch them. So it's not in the legislation. Legislation is fairly open, uh, but uh, it's um, you know something that's going to you know start to become clearer over over time. Thank you, Bob. I have a number of questions, but our time is up. I thought this conversation was fascinating. You are obviously well on top of things. For our listeners uh, who want to speak to Bob directly, uh, it's Bob Kirk, K-I-R-K-E. He's the executive director of the Canadian Apparel Association. Um, Bob, your email address is what? It's B. A-I-R-K-E at apparel.ca. We are quickly moving up to the calendar date to June 1, 2023. That's six months away from January 1, 2024. You mentioned that regulations, policy, papers are expected or likely expected to come out this summer into fall. It's going to be a busy 2023, both in Canada and the United States. And so um, I would like to extend a second invitation to you, Bob, <laughs> sometime after 
January of next year, if not earlier. You've been very, very generous with your time. The Aaron Fox Schiff Forced Labor Practice uh, can be Googled. A number of alerts, as well as the link to this uh, recording, will be on our practice website. We are, uh, as I mentioned, watching this and following this very, very closely for um, our clients particularly in the apparel industry. And uh, once again, on behalf of Aaron Fox Schiff, Bob, thank you very, very much. And as a reminder for our listeners, Aaron Fox Schiff, we are smart in your world. <laughs>